Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. Welcome to Motley Fool Money. Thanks for being here. I'm your host, Chris Hill, and joining me in studio this week from Motley Fool Income Investor, James Early, and from Million Dollar Portfolio, Charlie Travers and Ron Gross. Gentlemen, good to see you as always. Good, good to see, see you, Chris. Chris. We have got the latest on Amazon, BP, and more with the Belmont Stakes just days away. We've got Stephen Christ from the Daily Racing Forum with some tips on how to make money investing at the track. And as always, we've got a few stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. And guys, I think it's fair to say the big macro is a little ugly this week. It's a little macro. Uh, yeah. Uh, the Friday jobs report, unemployment rose to 8.2%. Uh, Ron, just 69,000 new jobs added in May. What do you think? Much worse than expected. I'm pessimistic again, unfortunately. Uh, the only bright spot is that more workers entered the labor force once again, again looking for work. Unfortunately, the jobs don't happen to be there, so things it's are kind not of a positive good. Though, at least, yeah, right? Well, if we have to find a silver lining, that's where we'll look. James, what do you think? This is better than nothing. I expected worse, truth be told. I think these job numbers, though, are, are going to be more important as we head towards the election because people are just going to be watching this more. So, you know, we've had kind of up and down, up and down, up and down. This is a little bit down. It's still not enough to make a trend out of. So the next two, I think, are going to matter even more. Right. 1.9% is still growth. So we're not in a recessionary environment, but it's getting less and less and less as we go forward. A little bit scary. Um, this does open the door for something like QE3, quantitative, quantitative easing 3, easy for me to say, where the government will come in with some additional stimulus. I mean, we already have interest rates near zero. We've had QE1 and 2. We've had a lot of stimulus going on. It's, it's a little bit frightening in the sense that the Fed really has not, not much to throw at this problem. You're big on stimulation, but can we, can we actually stimulate our way out of this would be the bigger so far question. it appears the answer is no, which yeah. is the scary part. Well, and of course, that's the big headline on Friday. But we saw other stuff around the world. Europe continues to be a mess. And Ron, China's uh, manufacturing numbers right. that came out late in the week. Which is uh, killing commodity stocks, um, as well as a lot of other stocks, actually. Um, so... The, the purchasing numbers came in less than expected. Growth is slowing. The silver lining here is that it's still above 50, which indicates relatively robust growth. So things are still fine. They're just coming down, and they're less than expected. And as we constantly say, things trade on expectations. And so stocks are selling off uh, on that, plus our jobs data. And things are rocky in, in Europe, too. I mean, yeah. obviously, your, your paella is about to get a little <laughs> bit cheaper. But, I do uh, like paella. I, I, it is good stuff. Uh, there, I see two, two main issues there. One would be simply the, the common currency without a common taxation. It's, it's kind of like merging your finances without actually being married. And, and, and now Europe is sort of reaping the fruits of that. But the other thing is U.S. Treasuries, uh, the yields are, I think, at like a 10-year low. Yeah, 1.5, so, yeah, maybe 10-year. It, it's, it's crazy. So the question is, you know, is that something you want to keep getting into? It's a flight to safety, but what else is it? We talked uh, earlier in, uh, well, really just a few weeks ago about the old adage, sell in May and go away. And that held true this year. May <laughs> was true a lot. May yeah. was a lousy <laughs> month for the market. Uh, with the jobs numbers, with May hammering the market, is now the time to buy? Is now the time to be, you know, sort of greedy when others are fearful? Uh, fearful? It's interesting. Um, I was just asked that yesterday um, to put kind of a rating on where I see things, and I'm seeing more and more opportunities, but I'm more and more fearful. Um, and so, do you do the contrarian thing and be greedy when others are fearful, like Warren Buffett says, or are there real concerns out there? I think there are real concerns out there. So you got to be conservative. You got to pick your spots very carefully. James, 
I, I agree with Ron. I, I think there are definitely, there are always opportunities. I, I, I see a lot uh, internationally, especially. I mean, the world is, is our oyster. Uh, some of the stocks are overpriced, but there are many great bargains out there, too. Charlie Travers, time to buy? Uh, Chris, I think it's always time to buy. I do agree with Ron's conservatism and uh, picking your spots and being selective, but there's always good companies on sale, and uh, with stocks trading down this month, there's stuff to look at right now. Michael Bloomberg is looking to fight New York City's obesity problem by banning the sale of sugary drinks in containers of more than 16 ounces. Uh, This would affect, Ron, thousands of restaurants, movie theaters, food carts, sports venues. Big gulp enthusiasts. Uh, Well, that's the thing. Ironically, uh, as I understand it, this proposal would not affect the big gulp. uh, But, you know, what, what do you make of this? So, I mean, this is not supposed to be a political show, obviously. So, I mean, I do have my own opinions about how he seems to be imposing his beliefs about health on other people. If you drink a big gulp or a large soda, it's not the same as if you smoke a cigarette in someone's face. So, for me, it's a little bit imposing uh, some things that may perhaps shouldn't be imposed on. But from a business perspective, um, sodas are high margin uh, uh, drink, uh, high margin products, especially the kinds that come out of the fountain. Um, so, Pepsi, Coke, McDonald's. Starbucks, they have to not be happy about it. If it's just uh, constrained or, or just New York, that's one thing. If it bleeds into other cities like the smoking bans have, that really could impact business. Uh, James, yeah. you have to be torn about this because you're a very healthy person. You don't drink soda, but on the other hand, I know that uh, you're you're not necessarily in favor of uh, paternalistic government. That is true, Chris. I you know I think the big issue is, as Ron says, is is could this create a ripple effect, momentum to spread elsewhere? But I have to first just ask. I mean, so you can't buy a sixteen ounce, uh, thirty two ounce serving size. What was the the cutoff? It's, it, it's yeah. anything over sixteen ounces. Couldn't you just buy two eight ounces yes. and put it together. <laughs> and I, mean, I think I think companies. Will uh, restaurants and, and will start offering free real refills even more so than they do now. So it's kind of a moot point anyway. It's very hard to legislate something like this. I was thinking they would do buy one get one free, so just give you two <laughs> sixteen go. ounces. Yeah. And there is going to be a two hundred dollar fine for violation of this, but I think that would be on the establishment, not necessarily yeah. the person. I do like the idea. I mean, I'm teaching yeah. my own son that the sodas are for people with inadequacies. I mean, it's just something that, <laughs> that I want to ingrain in him, you know, off the bat. So, so I, I like the momentum. The, the positive thing is that this doesn't cover milkshakes. So. So, you know, well, we're uh, good. You know, that's the thing. I mean, it's uh, depending on how this proposal gets enforced. And it, at this point, it is a proposal. It needs to be approved by New York City's Board of Health. Which he has appointed. Uh, which he has appointed. <laughs> so, yes, it, it seems like Mayor Bloomberg has sort of set the table for this to, to get passed. Um, but, uh, Charlie, Starbucks may not be affected by this because w- the way the proposal is currently written, um, how much sugar content um, matters, but also how much milk or dairy content uh, is in there. So, one report I read said that a 24-ounce Coke is off-limits, um, but a 24-ounce white mocha frappuccino, mm. which actually has more sugar than the 24-ounce Coke, that would be allowed. Of course it does. It's it's selective, uh, you know, nanny state health paternalism. Is any yeah. company rooting for this? If you're, you know, if you're, because it, it seems like some businesses are getting hammered where I think others those little maybe... like energy shot drinks. Because then you get like a little yeah. two ounce shot of caffeine and a high. <laughs> any dose. alternative beverage company? Yeah, right. It, I mean, obviously, if if it does translate to health, then yeah. you know, everybody benefits from an insurance perspective, a cost perspective to the the. And that's what it is. To be fair to the story, I think if you look at it on an individual level, it sounds it sounds 
sounds nanny statish. It sounds uh, restrictive. But if you look statistically, we do have a huge uh, childhood uh, diabetes issue in this country. We have childhood obesity. We have some serious health problems statistically, and I, I think those numbers really prove something. So I think this is a stab at that. So in terms of alternative beverage, so like if you're if you're monster beverage, you're excited about this on some level because, you know, it's, you know, to Charlie's point about the uh, the the five hour energy drinks, you know, the the monster beverages of the world, they're the ones who are, who potentially benefit. This partly, I, th- I think, and the beverage market in general, though, is controlled by by a relatively small number of, of big players that have wide selections. Like you know, Coke and Pepsi make more drinks than people might think. So I think it's just going to be shifting from one side of the coin to the other with the same company in some respects. And, and just to, to finish up on this, I would say you know the market does self regulate to a certain extent. We've got lower calorie drinks coming on more and more. Whether it's Pepsi Next or Dr Pepper Ten, we've got a lot of trends in water, vitamin water, vitamin water zero, no calories. So th- there is a you know. The market does dictate where companies go, um, and whether we need the government stepping in is, is remains to be seen. So, as a Coca-Cola shareholder, I shouldn't be worried about this at this point. Not yet. No, no. Uh, a lot going on this week in the mobile phone industry, guys. Research in Motion is preparing to lay off as many as six thousand employees. Uh, Samsung earlier this week launched its Galaxy S3 phone in Europe uh, to good reviews, and Charlie, it, 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 at least according to reports, uh, good sales. Uh, and also, Facebook is reportedly looking to recruit engineers from Apple to work on its own smartphone initiative. Uh, sort of an ever-shifting landscape, Charlie. What do you think? Well, I'll start on the positive, Chris. And uh, people might not know this, but Samsung is actually the global leader in handset sales. They sold 93 million phones last quarter, which is a staggering number. And and they don't get there by putting out poor products and tricking people. They actually make good phones that people want to (laughs) use. Uh, and they claim <laughs> a, a <laughs> what a business model. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so this Galaxy uh, S3 that they just released, uh, they're claiming they had 10 million pre-orders, and there were actually people up lining out the doors to uh, get their hands on one of these. And I saw a lot of multiple reviews from different sources saying this is the single best smartphone on the market and that the iPhone 4S doesn't even compare. Uh, so this is a chance for uh, Samsung to try and make a little more inroads on the high end of the market. Along with Apple, these are the only two companies that make any money selling smartphones. Uh, And so Apple really has to up its game with the iPhone 5 to keep up. Yeah, it really is. uh, And we talked about this earlier in the week on our Market Foolery podcast. It really is uh, this two-horse race. Is is anyone going to be a legitimate third horse in this race. You've got Google recently closing its deal with uh, with Motorola Mobility um, and Facebook. You know, I mean, we, I, I certainly laughed a little bit when I saw that Facebook was looking to make a mobile phone. But you know what? They've they got a lot of money in the bank off of their IPO and. They probably shouldn't be bet against. I mean, who's who's? I, like- I would bet against them in smartphones. There's a lot of other companies with big balance sheets that are failing because of the competitive nature. Uh, Research in Motion, which we mentioned, is having troubles. Uh, Nokia is having troubles. Uh, Motorola had to get picked off by Google. I, w- I would not be eager to enter this yeah. space. It's in- too competitive. Unless it changes. In the U.S., remember, it's different from overseas. Overseas, people tend to buy the phone and then you get your contract. In the U.S., phones are much more embedded into the price of the contract, and that tends to squeeze margins. Yeah. And, and I really like this ecosystem. I like that my, my iPhone syncs with my iPad, that syncs with my Mac at home. And, and I need that continuity among among products. It really is a very big selling point yeah. of why I'm going to stick with iPhone and not move away. And there's not a lot of companies that can offer something like that. 
So if you're Apple or Samsung, you're you're basically eyeing one another. You're not really looking back at the field worried about someone else entering it? I would still uh, count Microsoft and Nokia's partnership as a dark horse when Windows 8 comes out later this year, especially now that Verizon has come out and said they will support a third ecosystem. Uh, the support of the carriers cannot be uh, overstated here. If you are looking to buy part of an oil business in Russia and you've got a few billion dollars in your money market account, we got some good news. Details next. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. It's the root of all evil, of strife and upheaval. But I'm certain, honey, that life would be sunny with plenty of money and you. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with James Early, Charlie Travers, and Ron Gross. BP has a 50% stake in TNK-BP Holding, a joint venture in Russia. On Friday, BP said it is looking to sell that stake. Uh, James Early, why the move? Well, Chris, BP has uh, ongoing issues in Russia for a little while now. Other oil companies have had the same thing, too. It's been a a rocky place to do business. I think it's good that the market obviously likes uh, this this divestiture, too. I think I I read the New York Times, this TNK-BP, this Russian venture, makes up about 30% of BP's oil and about 10% of BP's uh, profit. So it's it's fairly material, and it's a big thing to be getting out, but but it sounds like it's a good move. Uh, you look at BP's stock year-to-date, it's down about 15%. Is that a buying opportunity for someone looking to get into oil and gas, or is there a better oil and gas stock out there. Yeah, Chris, oil is, is is not rich right now. A lot of the oil companies are, are down a bit. I don't know that the BP is the best buy. I don't know that all of its ducks are, are in order right now. Uh, as you might know, I like Chevron uh, quite a bit. It's, it's a strong, it's a U.S. company, uh, but it's got a good reputation internationally, so it's called on to help a lot of national oil companies explore their oil. So that's one I would go into over BP. Facebook has a service that converts a user's comment about a product into an ad for that product that appears on friends' pages. Uh, Charlie, is this something that's going to make a lot of money for Facebook or annoy its members? Let's us all be Don Draper, Chris. But uh, (laughs) what they're trying to do is take advantage of the ultimate in social proof, where uh, the word of mouth recommendations of a friend or family member is it's very powerful to get people to try new products. And and so they are converting. Like if you like a product or an organization or a video you find online, they can make an ad about it. Uh, But the key point here is that only people you want to share with can see your activity. This is not going out to the entire 900 million Facebook users out there. Uh, Nonetheless, I do find it a little creepy, but it is part of the terms of service. And if you sign on for Facebook, you are implicitly agreeing to this. Don't like preparation age, basically. Right. Yeah. Be careful what you like. It is a little big brothery, but at least it's not to the whole world, I guess. Right. 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 Well, and Ron, we've talked a lot over the last couple of weeks about Facebook and the rocky start to the IPO and all that sort of thing. Meanwhile, Google which is reportedly on track to do about $40 billion in ad revenue this year. Uh, on some level, do you think there's just a little bit of schadenfreude going on at Google that they're just <laughs> sort of maybe chuckling just a little at the two weeks that Facebook has had? I don't know about chuckling, but it is a competitive world out there, and so I'm sure they're... Uh 
they're happy. To, I mean, it's about valuation, really. The business has uh, Facebook hasn't taken really a hit or anything, so um, I'm not sure if they really uh, care uh, that much. But I'm sure they like having some of the attention uh, pulled away from them because Google, right. for a long time, was kind of uh, viewed a little uh, cautiously for scraping every single word you write in Gmail or search online, yeah, yeah. and now that's off. Uh, Facebook's in that. And it's got to be fun for them to watch the Facebook train wreck. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but but some of the problems that Facebook is having post IPO and some of the things that have gotten attention, Google has to deal with as well. Specifically, the mobile business and about how how it's less profitable than the desktop business, and they're both going to have to figure that out. Google seems to have come up with a nice uh, way to figure that out by uh, you know getting themselves with the, the Android business and getting themselves on m- mobile devices, but it, it doesn't uh, take away the fact that that business is less profitable. And it's going to be hard for Facebook. The mobile attention is so precious, and it's just hard to serve up an ad when you can barely even get the content out. Right. Amazon and Microsoft have unveiled an instant video app that enables people to stream movies and TV shows on their Xbox 360 console. So I turn to Charlie Travers, the Xbox user in the room. And um, film aficionado. And film aficionado. Um, how happy are you, and how happy should Amazon and Microsoft shareholders be? I'm ecstatic as a consumer, Chris, and I see this as a win-win deal for both companies. Uh, Amazon is really, uh, they're behind the eight ball with uh to Netflix and Hulu Plus in the streaming space, but they are charging hard fast and getting out onto Microsoft's platform where they have 40 million Xbox Live subscribers is a huge untapped market for them. I'm glad to see them get in here. They want to get into as many ecosystems as they can. Uh, Previously, they were available on Sony's PlayStation and on the Roku. Uh, Microsoft, on the other hand, wants as many content providers running through its Xbox Live service so it could keep charging uh, $60 a year for it. Uh, And they already had Netflix, uh, Vudu, Hulu Plus, and to get Amazon on there only makes the package even more attractive. Uh, The one thing I don't like is that you can't actually purchase Amazon TV shows or movies through the service. So hopefully this is just a first step and they'll beef up the service as time goes on. You go online first and then it... Yeah, you have to log into your laptop, go to Uh, Amazon, buy the show, and then go on. So to to make it all work, though, as someone who actually needs advice on this, I have an Xbox and I'm an Amazon user, but I'm not a Prime subscriber, so I need to subscribe to Prime and I need to subscribe to live. Both, you do. Right? You do. Okay, so I'll get hit both there, but then I'll get a lot of product offerings. Right, and you get the fr- uh, free two-day shipping. Got so. it. Okay. Do you want Charlie to come over to your house yeah, and you help you with this? Yeah, you can Once you get wires involved and yeah. you know, passwords. Um, so we've talked before about the battle for the living room. Um, does this make Microsoft uh, a stronger competitor or even the lead competitor for that? To win that battle? I, I like Microsoft. I think they are the top dog in this space. They've, uh, there's more people watching videos through the Xbox than actually using it to play video games, mm-hmm. which is very interesting. Uh, but I don't think we can count out Apple quite yet. Uh, they have a strong tradition of making innovative products, and the Apple TV is something we're going to have to watch for later this year. Okay. Charlie, James, Ron, we will see you later in the show. Hey, drop us an email. Radio at fool.com is the way to reach us. Let us know who you think is going to win the battle for the living room. Who are you betting on? Is it Amazon? Is it Apple? Microsoft? Netflix? Tell us who you're betting on and why. Radio at fool.com. Coming up, we'll get a few tips on how to invest in a completely different way with horse race betting expert Stephen Christ. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. How much money is bet on horse racing every year? Well, it's around $13 billion, which is more than Hollywood takes in at the box office. So with the Belmont Stakes just days away and the possibility of a triple crown winner, 
We figured we would check in with Stephen Crist. He has written several books on horse racing and betting, and he is the publisher and chairman of the Daily Racing Forum, which is to horse players what the Wall Street Journal is to investors. Stephen, thank you so much for being here. Sure, glad to be on. Uh, we will get to the Belmont Stakes in a little bit, uh, but first, let's just talk horse betting in general. I'm a complete novice, so what are the sort of the major factors that I should consider when I'm thinking about betting on a horse? Well, the major thing you should do to be totally self-serving is to buy and study the daily racing <laughs> form. Uh, you know, just as an investor would uh, would read the Wall Street Journal and uh, you know various reports and websites, but uh, you know as uh, people in your world like to say, past performance is no guarantee, you know, of future results. But it's sure the best place to start. Um, are there factors that people tend to? overvalue? Is that one of them? Like just looking at, well, this horse has done well the last few races, so that'll absolutely continue in the future? Well, I I think there are factors that people overvalue, especially uh, very casual fans. Uh, For example, I think that uh, people who go to the racetrack once a year think that the jockeys are terribly, terribly important and that it's a good idea to spend time studying the records of the jockeys. Uh, I, I think that's largely a waste of time. Uh, I mean, I have a tremendous amount of respect for the physical risks that these guys take and and the skills that they have. But, uh, you know, at a a top track like Belmont or Churchill Downs, you know, the top ten riders, they're so close in ability, you could practically assign the mounts out of a hat, and the races would pretty much come out the same way. Uh, There's a reason it's called horse racing and not jockey racing. Now, that's surprising to me because uh, here at The Motley Fool, we, we sort of have the horse versus jockey debate from time to time. We do it, though, in terms of businesses and just saying, you know, looking at a business or an industry and the jockey, in this case, is the CEO and thinking, okay, well, Bill Gates uh, did really well at Microsoft. If you put him in charge of IBM uh, for 15 years, would the, would the same results occur? And it seems like, at least in the world of investing, there are CEOs who really could succeed in almost any environment, whereas others sort of, um, uh, I guess, caught the lucky horse, to, to use your parlance. But really, jockeys don't matter that much at all? No, I, I think you've got the wrong analogy, um, because it's really the trainer who's the CEO, not the jockey. Uh, I mean, the, the jockey frequently meets the horse for the first time six minutes before he, he rides him. Uh, he is not managing the horse's life and career in the way that a trainer is. Uh, so I think most experienced and successful horse players pay a lot more attention to trainers than they do to jockeys. Now, you've been doing this for a long time. You, uh, you went to Harvard University. You were, I, I, do I have this correct? You were studying literature? Uh, yes, I, I was studying Renaissance poetry, and uh, one night a classmate said, you want to go to the dog track? And I said, what's a dog track? And uh, two hours later, my career as a student of Renaissance literature was pretty much over. I just fell in love with it immediately and uh, tried to figure out a way to get paid to go to the racetrack. <laughs> you went to Wonderland. I, I, having gone to school in the Boston area, I know that track. Yeah, it, uh, back in the 70s, it was just a charming, festive place, and wow, racing dogs wearing different colored blankets, and, you know, to me, the eureka moment was when I uh, bought a program and saw that there was some sort of correlation between all those numbers and how the races turned out, and I've, uh, you know, wasted the last 30 years pursuing <laughs> those correlations. Now, what has been, I mean, 30 years, that's a long time in any industry, what, what's been the biggest change 
when it comes to horse race betting over the last 30 years that you've seen? Well, it's gotten a lot more sophisticated. I mean, one of the things that I've spent a lot of my career in racing doing was working to improve the the breadth and the quality of the information that horse players get. I mean, they used to get pretty sketchy uh, information in the racing form. And, you know, when I started out, I'd have to supplement what was in there with, you know, hours a day of my own research. And uh, first with a paper called The Racing Times, and, and then, uh, you know, when a group of us bought The Racing Form uh, more than 10 years ago, we really tried to upgrade that information and save people, you know, all that independent research and just put a lot more info into those past performances. You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Stephen Christ from The Daily Racing Form. Uh, let's talk about your business, because this is a, a paper that goes back to the 1890s. Um, how is business? Well, business is fine because we've managed to uh, branch out uh, into online. I mean, nobody's getting rich, you know, publishing uh, newspaper newspapers anymore. Uh, but our past performances are something that, that work very, very well uh, over the Internet. And we've been able to add an, an interactive quality to them that you obviously don't have on a dead tree. Uh, in the people who access our past performances online, they can click on a trainer's name and research a wealth of statistics about that trainer. They can click on the date of the race and watch a video replay of that race and, and get a chart. Uh, so it's, it's really turned something that was two-dimensional into something three-dimensional. And it's, uh, you know, the difference between now and 20 years ago in terms of the information that a horse player can access is just staggering. So the Internet, it sounds like, has helped your business more than hurt it. Uh, it has very much so. Uh, you know, a lot of people now download their past performances instead of driving out to a newsstand in the middle of the night to get the form when it comes off the truck. Uh, you know, we're, we're still going to be a print product for a long time. And, you know, I would say that, that most of our customers over the age of 40, you know, use the paper version, and most of our customers under the age of 40 use the online version. Now, I'm not thinking about quitting my job anytime soon and changing careers, but I'm just curious, to what extent can people make real money, make a, even a career out of betting on horses? You, you, you see this or you read about people who uh, make money as a living being a poker player or something like that. Uh, to what extent can people do that with betting on horses? It's a lot harder with, with horses, and I'd be surprised if there are 100 people in America uh, who are really making a, a good living betting the horses. Uh, the, the problem isn't that it's, you know, so impossible uh, to, to pick winners, uh, but racing has a massive takeout race. I mean, on every race, only 80% of the money that's bet is returned to the customers. Uh, and, you know, after about 25 or 30 races, everybody is theoretically broke. I mean, can you imagine if there were a 20% takeout on every, you know, stock trade that was made? All the money would move from the customers to the house pretty rapidly. Uh, you know, and that's the price that's paid for the cost of, you know, maintaining racetracks and putting on the races and everything else. And it's really the biggest problem in, in racing and, and why it doesn't grow and why there aren't more professional bettors. Uh, that 20% of, of every bet that's made, that's a huge bite. That's still a smaller bite than the state lottery. I mean, aren't states taking like 40, 50%? 
Yes, they are. And how many people are making a full-time living playing the state lottery? <laughs> good point. Good point. <laughs> In the same way, look, anyone can have a good year or, you know, hit a pick six that pays $100,000. I mean, people do win all the time, uh, but, but it's, a, it's a tough living to grind it out day by day fighting that 20% takeout. How has your approach to betting on horses changed over the last 30 years? What's, what's really been sort of the biggest shift, or has there been no shift at all? No, I think there's been a, a pretty big shift in that when I, I started out, I really thought that, that the whole game was just divining the most likely winner of the race and, and that it was about picking winners. But at some point, the light bulb went on uh, that it really was a game that was as much about value as it was about picking winners. Uh, you know, there are horses who are great bets at three to one, and the same horse is a terrible bet at even money. I mean, I think similarly, you know, with, with buying stocks, there are wonderful companies, you know, whose stock is overpriced at any given moment, and it would be a bad investment, even if it's a good company. And there are plenty of good horses, uh, you know, including the upcoming favorite in the Belmont Stakes, who are good horses and the most likely winner of a race, but terrible investments at a very short price. Uh, it's really, you know, like any sophisticated type of investing involving the public, what you look for are for the public to make mistakes in valuation and to take advantage of those mistakes. So it's, it's not enough to be able to say, gee, this horse looks like he's the best horse in the field. You have to equally, if not more so, consider his price and his value. Now, I have to move this over to the world of investing in stocks, um, because the way you're talking makes me think that you're also as adept at investing in stocks as you are at betting on horses. I know you don't do it for a living the way, the way you cover horse racing, but how do you manage your money? Is it by investing? No, I, I uh, totally cowardly safe. I mean, what whatever money I have sits in savings accounts and nice safe bonds. I, I have enough risk in my daily horse playing, uh, and it takes up my time. And I find it more entertaining than you know studying uh, companies and executives and, and PE ratios. So uh, I you know I save my risk for fooling around at the, at the racetrack, but I, I keep my money pretty much under the mattress. Coming up, a preview of the Belmont Stakes and a round of buy, sell, or hold. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. If you've got the money, I You're listening to Motley Fool Money, talking with Stephen Chris, the publisher and chairman of the Daily Racing Forum. Um, I'm going to get to the Belmont Stakes in just a second, but uh, if I go to the track tomorrow and pick up the Daily Racing Forum, What's one thing I should keep in mind as I'm looking over the slate of races in front of me? Is it the odds? Is it um, trying to figure out who is the best trainer? Just one tip to help me do a little bit better at the track than I would do on my own. I would say to look at uh, what are called the buyer speed figures. Uh, these are ratings for each horse's performance in every race run in North America that are compiled by a team headed by Andrew Beyer, a uh, longtime racing writer for the Washington Post. And we've been publishing those in the, the racing form for about the last 15 years. And, you know, they give you an at-a-glance look at whether a horse is good enough to win a race or not. You know, a horse who earned a 94 
speed figure last time isn't always going to beat a horse who ran a 93 last time because there are dozens and dozens of other factors. But if you have a race with two horses who routinely run figures in the 90s and no one else is better than a 70, guess what? The race is between the two horses that run in the 90s. All right. Let's talk about the Belmont. I'll have another, which is one, uh, the first two jewels of the Triple Crown, is on the one hand uh, favored to win this race, but on the other hand, I think it's the last 10 or 11 times we've seen this scenario, Stephen, where we have one horse that has won the first two races. Um, they, they come up empty on the third. Uh, other horses like Union Rags and Dullahan have got, have got some, some pretty good odds as well. What should we expect, and how are you going to be betting? As you just pointed out, the last 11 horses who have been in this position, dating back to a spectacular bid in 1979, the last 11 horses who won the Derby in Preakness and came to the Belmont with a chance of winning the Triple Crown all lost the Belmont. Despite that, I'll have another is going to be roughly even money to win the Belmont. So, you know, if you're betting on I'll have another, you're taking, you know, 50-50 odds on something that has failed 11 times in a row. It's a terrible, terrible bet. Even if he wins this race, you know, that'll be one out of the last 12. And, you you know, you would only double your money. Uh, It's a situation that occurs every single time there's a horse going for the Triple Crown. Even if people don't think he's the next coming of Secretariat, the horse is always favored. He always goes off at about even money. Uh, and you're supposed to bet against the horse. And I'm sorry if that sounds, you know, unromantic or unsentimental, but the worst bet in racing from a pure return on investment point of view is betting the Derby and Freakness winner to win the Belmont. You got a name for me? Or, or do I have to check it out at, at, uh, at drf.com? Are you going to unveil your pick before the Belmont Stakes? Uh, I, I definitely will, but I have no idea who it's going to be. I just know it's not going to be <laughs> I'll have another because I cannot in good conscience recommend taking 50-50 on a 1-12 in 12 proposition. You're listening to Motley Fool Money talking with Stephen Christ from the Daily Racing Forum. We will wrap up with a round of buy, sell, or hold Let's start with uh, another popular way to bet money. Buy, sell, or hold blackjack. Buy. Uh, Blackjack is one of the only, if not the only, game in which an intelligent player who is educated about the game can expect to turn a profit in a casino. So uh, of all the casino games, buy blackjack. I think I know how you're going to answer this, but I'll ask anyway. Buy, sell, or hold slots. Sell. It's just that it's just throwing your money away, isn't it? There's no such thing as correct strategy. There's no nothing you can do to improve your chances. If you sit there long enough, you'll lose about ten percent of your investment, minute after minute, hour after hour. Um, I, I don't understand why people play them. I, I guess just for the chance of hitting some kind of giant jackpot, but uh, it's it's a bad bet. You used to work at the New York Times. Buy, sell, or hold the likelihood that the New York Times will still offer a print edition in 10 years. Oh, buy. I, I think they absolutely will. I, I don't think us elderly people are going to die off quite that quickly. You're a former editor of the Harvard Lampoon, and this guy 
not at the same time as you, but he did also write for the Harvard Lampoon. Buy, sell, or hold Conan O'Brien. Oh, definitely buy. I think he's great. We we sort of just missed each other. He got there right after I graduated, I think, but uh, I, I'm a big fan. You Harvard guys just stick together. You That's can say. it. It's a conspiracy. <laughs> uh, and finally, some people swear by these. Buy, sell, or hold good luck charms. Sell. They, there's obviously no such thing as a good luck charm, but, you know, if it makes you feel better, it's harmless. <laughs> Much better than a good luck charm. Check out Stephen's blog online at drf.com. He is the publisher and chairman of the Daily Racing Forum. Stephen Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. If I got me a gig for 50 bucks. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. So don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Joining me in studio once again, James Early, Charlie Travers, and Ron Gross. Gentlemen, time to wrap up with the stocks that are on our radar. We will be ringing in our man Steve Broido from the other side of the glass. He'll, he'll be picking a stock, so the pressure's on, Ron. <laughs> what do you got this week? This is a stock James has mentioned before. It's Amco Pittsburgh, AP. They're a microcap maker of forged hardened steel rolls for the um, steel production industry. Steel producers use these rolls to kind of make their steel products. Uh, the stock is getting smacked, thank you, China, along, <laughs> <laughs> along with all other commodity stocks. Rock solid balance sheet, 4.6% dividend yield. It's cheap based on every metric I use to value companies. We just need to be patient and wait out the cycle, and I think it'll be a real big winner. James, how do you feel about Ron basically stealing your stock? You know, it must have been a long time ago that I mentioned that. Yeah, I'm thinking. Yeah. I think so, it was an uh, Alex Pape, one of our analysts, had once mentioned it. Gotcha, to you. gotcha. Yeah. All right, James Early, your stock? Uh, I'm going with Cato, Chris. I love to see a, a non flashy company succeed. And Cato makes sort of like grade B fashion level women's clothing and, and sells them in sort of grade B level strip malls in, in smaller towns. And that sounds, that sounds awesome. non-flashy, <laughs> but that's that's a lot of Americans. I mean, not everybody wants to spend a ton of money on a blouse or pants. You know, it's just, it's real life. And it just, just raises dividend 9%. It pays 3.5% and it's up 19% year to date. It's not sexy, but it's a solid company. And the ticker symbol? C-A-T-O. Okay. Charlie Travers? So, I was talking gaming earlier in the show. I'm going to come back with another gaming stock and that would be Nintendo. The ticker's N-T-D-O-Y. Uh, this is a great brand company, a pioneer in the space, uh, but the stock's at a six-year low. Their profits have evaporated due to competition from smartphones and tablets, uh, but I like that the stock is trading for just a bit above tangible book. You have a $16 billion market cap, and they have $11 billion in cash with a new product coming out later this year that could reinvigorate their profits. So I think this is an interesting opportunity right now. All right, Steve Broida, what do you think? Three very different stocks there. You got one you like? Well, as much as I enjoy women's fashion <laughs> and cold rolled steel, I may have to go with Nintendo. I think uh, it seems like the Wii Fit thing and the whole Wii platform is not doing that well right now, but I wouldn't be surprised if Nintendo pulled something out that was better than that. Do you have a Wii in your home? I don't. I've played it uh, before, and it, it, it seemed fairly unrewarding, but uh, <laughs> I believe Nintendo will come through. All right. Congratulations, Charlie. Thank you. Fixed. Mm. <laughs> Ron Gross, James Early, Charlie Travers. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Chris. That is it for this edition of Motley Fool Money. Our engineer is Steve Broido. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thank you.